Uh, Terry, thank you very much. Uh, I think Richard was the one that started that rumor about you actually starting the church, and I just want to straighten that out. That happened 175 years ago. There's no way Terry could have done that. He was only two at the time. So whatever start that rumor, you can't believe it. But uh, Terry has certainly been a historian for this church. Not only has his family... Uh, done a lot, started the church, but been major uh, contributors to it. He himself has done a lot. And Terry, I honor you for your ministry in this area, this church, for years and years and years. And I'm glad you're still part of it. We're celebrating 175 years to remember what God has done because we want to continue to go forward with God. It's kind of like the communion and baptism thing. We look back to celebrate what God has done we look forward and commit ourselves to moving forward that we might be part of an eternal kingdom. We are here for a season. Then we're gone. Seven seasons, seven generations have gone before us. This is our season. Then we're gone. What will we do with our season? Will we take the baton from one generation and faithfully hold it until we pass it on? That's our challenge. So thank you, Terry, and for the rest of the team that is helping us remember 175 years. But there is a purpose to it, and that is so we will be encouraged to continue on faithful as those that had come before us. Now, uh, I want to do a little bit of an exercise. So stand up. Go ahead, stand up. Now, I do this because you've been sitting for a while, and I'm going to preach, and uh, I don't want you nodding off. Now... In your own mind, you don't have to say much. If you want to, go ahead. Say all the Ten Commandments. I just played them for you up on the thing here. Like, they're, they're all there. How many can you get? Go ahead. Just use one word. Don't misuse God's name. There's one. I, that's a gimme. I gave you that one. See if you can add a few more. Go ahead. Try. Think of them. Just think, how many can you get? Now, for some of you, you might have the give me, and then you might get one or two. To others, that's okay. Uh, and others of you are rattling your way through, you're going to get all ten. Some of you got seven. Some of you might have got four. That's okay. This is what I want you to point out. You know what? I can guess that I would guess, this is a stat I'm making off the top of my head, 90% of you got at least these two. Even if you got two, I'm going to think that it, you, these were the two that you got. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. I'll bet you they're the ones that were most common when we were trying to work our way through what are the ten. You go ahead, have a seat. Now, I don't think I need to explain a lot about you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. My son reminded me that murder is a specific word. It's not kill, it's murder. Uh, and that, that makes room for some of the things that happen in other part of the scriptures. So there's a little bit of complexity there, but we don't really need to go into that. Because you're not in a place of authority where you can give anybody the right to kill. I don't think any of you are there. Any of us are there. So we can be content with, I'll not murder. So I was thinking this could 
potentially be a very short sermon. <laughs> don't murder, don't commit adultery, let's pray. <laughs> but what is most confusing about these commands is the why behind the commands. We often neglect the why so we don't get the full impact of the what. Why does God say don't murder? Why does God say don't commit adultery? John Calvin uh, wrote uh, this, John Calvin the great reformer, uh, he wrote this, the command, so he's commentating on uh, this passage. The command to not kill requires us to seek the well-being and good of our neighbor. Now, how in the world did he get that out of thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder? Where does he get, it requires us to seek the good from thou shalt not murder. Well, actually, if you survey scripture, including Moses, you will come to realize that the scripture is always getting us to reflect on the inside of what's going on in us that produces the what that is in us. And no doubt in Moses' mind and in John Calvin's mind is the verse, verses from Genesis chapter 9 where the first command not to kill is given or maybe the second after Cain and uh, it, the, the uh, writer s says and, from e uh, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting so God is speaking to people I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Well, what does that mean? Well, this, he explains it. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. That's why. That there is something unique about you that is different from anything else in this creation. You bear the image of God. Now if you go to Genesis 1 where this idea of image first comes up. God says you, he puts his image on us so that we might do, we might rule the earth and take his kingdom throughout the earth. We bear the image of God because we are the highest part of his creation and we are given a godly responsibility and mission. And so he puts his image on us. Now, the scholars talk about, commentators talk about what that means, and there's a lot implied in it, but it does mean this, that we are given the responsibility and the right of free will. And in that we are unique. And made in the image of God, I do not have the right to take your life because you are the most important of all God's creation. You, you are highly significant to God. You might not be looked that way by others and you might not feel that way about yourself, but God says you 
are in his image and he has impressed on you value and significance and importance. Now, if you have children, you understand this. Because when you, like, I, I love my nieces and nephews, and Crystal and I, Crystal's the youngest in her family, so we were the last to start having children, but my love for my nieces and nephews was nothing like my love for my own kids. There's just something about receiving uh, that baby in your arms and knowing it came from you. And, it bear, and as they grow older, you see they bear your image, right? They hold their head the same way. They respond the same way. They talk the same way. They look the same way. And so you have, as a good parent, you will do anything to protect your child. You will jump to it if they're in danger. So Crystal and I rarely ever got involved with the teachers when they were disciplining our boys. We just figured, well, I remember being in public school and most, almost 99% of the time, I deserved whatever the teachers were dishing at. So we kind of took that philosophy. So we, we never really went in to the school to deal with discipline. Even Crystal, our boys hated this. Every year in June, Crystal would invite each of their teachers over for lunch and serve them. Our boys were like, do I have to go? And we were like, we, we did it to confirm to them that teachers are valuable, important, and they need to listen to their authority. And they were significant people in their life for that time. Anyway. So here Crystal and I are sitting in the, the principal's office. Crystal said, we, we have to go in and see the principal about one of our sons. Uh, he was acting up. And so we met the, in the principal's office with our son. And then the principal shared what our son had done. And we looked at our son and said, is that the way you should have been behaving? No. Uh, what, you should, what should you do about it? He apologized. Uh, we looked at the principal. Uh, do you forgive him? So he had to teach the principal to forgive. Do you forgive him? Is, is this okay now? Yeah, it's okay. okay. And so I thought we were done. <laughs> and I get up to go, and Crystal says, oh, I almost said his name, says to her son, could you shut the door as you leave? I'm like, shut the door? Like, am I in trouble now? Like... <laughs> I sat back down. Now, this is public. She's told this story, so I'm not telling stories at school. She looked at the principal and said, you're a complete idiot. She said, I cannot believe how out of control the teachers in this school and the students in the school are. And it all goes back to you, the leader. And if you can't get things under control and then explode willy-nilly on some kid you're having trouble with, she said, I'm going to take this further. So if you can't keep the control of the school, don't call me in to try to keep control of the school. Get it together. <laughs> I had no idea this was coming. So all I could say is, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what to do. So we go up to the car. And I'm like, where did that come from? And she said, I am tired of having to, I am tired of having to deal with this guy who doesn't know how to deal with kids and the whole school's running muck and then he bullies my son. There it was. I will stand up for my kid. I'm not letting some principal 
bully him. And he was. He was out of control. He didn't know how to handle kids. And he just randomly picked, well, <laughs> randomly picked about four or five different kids he didn't like. And then he would take his frustration out of them. So that's the way God feels about his children. Don't hurt my kids. That's why there's all these commands in the Bible to, to not physically attack, not to murder, not to speak bad about somebody, not to damage them in some way, not to abort them, not to attack them, not to gossip about them because God is protecting what is most valuable to him, his children. Because we are stamped with his image. Now, just put a pin in the murder thing here that I'm talking about. I want to talk about this idea of image just for a second. Scripture says, to understand your value and importance, look up. Look to me. And I will affirm what is good and created in you. And how you are unique among all others. And that I have a calling and a purpose for you. Our world says, because once you reject God, you can't look up because you don't believe in God or you don't receive God or you don't surrender God. So what does our world say? Look inside. Find out who you are and follow that. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but in our culture right now, there's a whole discussion about gender dysphoria. Now, gender dysphoria is not new. It's not like our generation is the first to have to discover this or deal with it. Gender dysphoria is very common. Studies have shown that it's not unusual for uh, men and women, in particular younger men, younger women, to begin to wonder who they are and why they're not like other boys or other girls. And then to, con to, to walk through that confusion and wonder, why am I like this? And so our world says, turn inside and follow that and change who you are. Change who you are. Because you're not acceptable the way you are. So change it, but pursue that. Follow that and you will find your answer. God's word says, ah, embrace the confusion. It's okay. And turn to me. And I will show you why you are important and significant. And that you're okay as you are. Even though you struggle with who you are, I will help you to understand how you are unique and valuable. So that voice is missing in our world. And by the way, it's kind of missing in our church because we're so strong on, oh, you know, against gender trans, uh, transition, but we forget that people are hurting and struggling with something that centuries of people have struggled with. And yet we have the answer. God has made you unique. He made you valuable. And so what, who you are and what you're going through finds its fulfillment in him. Seek him. You're made in his image. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. Find out how God wants to show his love and his purpose through you. And that's why you're unique. That's the voice I think we need to hear in our culture. Not change who you are. Become who God made you to be. 
but that's a process. I'm still working on it. <laughs> and so are you. There is hope in the fact that we're made in the image of God. Now, back, remember we put the pin? So that's, I just wanted to speak into our culture and show you how the word of God speaks uniquely and powerfully into your life. I want to go back to the idea of not murdering. It's still, don't murder. In fact, because people are made in the image of God and he values people, he often, have you ever noticed how many of the commands of God are about how we treat other people? Because other people are important to him. Paul, get rid, Paul says this in Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. Where does all that dwell? In here. It dwells in here. Because what, if, if you go to Jesus' commentary on this uh, passage, he talks about the bitterness and anger and rage within our souls that produces the actions that we have toward others who are hurt. Uh, 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 we produce the actions that hurt others that are in our life. And so Paul says, get rid of it. The stuff that's in here as well as the outward stuff, the brawling, the slander, along with every kind of malice, every kind of injustice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ forgiving, has forgiven you. Change the heart. And you can only change. Here's the beauty. You, you change as you seek God. That kind of change doesn't happen like that. Oh, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm not going to be a, a slanderer anymore. Boom, I'm going to change. That change happens as we seek God and... We deal with circumstances and the Holy Spirit, we're in his word, we're in worship, we're seeking him and God begins to change us from the inside out as his spirit grapples with our spirit and we surrender areas of our life to him. We become different people. Follow God's example. This is what God's like. He's like that. He's not full of bitterness, anger, rage. Bro. He's kind and compassionate. Follow that example as dearly loved children. You are unique. You are called by him twice. You are made by him in creation. And you are called by him and created new at salvation. Follow that new creation. Dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ has loved us. And gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love, even if it means sacrificing yourself to do well and good to others. Now, this whole idea of made in God's image and therefore is valuable also applies to the next command. Not only are we not supposed to murder, we're not supposed to commit adultery. And adultery is defined as having sexual relations with someone who is married but not to you. Now, like admittedly, we, we have this tension with uh, sex as uh, Christians. Um, on the one hand, we know that it's a sin, and uh, so we act really strongly against it. Sometimes we don't know how to handle it when it happens in our families or in our church. Uh, I was, as I was doing research for this, I came across a story. This has been true of uh, the church for hundreds of years. This is nothing 
this isn't anything new. This is true. Back in 1631, uh, Robert Barker, Martin Lucas were printers, and they were printing a, a new edition of the King James Bible, which had just been translated. And uh, they were printing it, and they forgot the not, and thou shalt not commit adultery. So they forgot to put it in. <laughs> so this became known as the Wicked Bible or the Sinner's Bible because when you read it, it said, thou shalt commit adultery. Now, I kind of think that's funny. I think it's funny and it's like, oh yeah, you got a mess. You just clean, you're going to have to take those Bibles back and probably reprint new ones. Nope, wasn't enough. Those in power that were also part of the leadership of the church decided that not only did the Bibles need to be recalled, which they were, um, but these guys needed to be uh, fined significantly and stripped of their, their license to print. And I'm like, they made a mistake. They forgot one word. They can fix it. There's a strong reaction against this, thou shalt commit adultery. But then, admittedly, we struggle with it. I, I would guess that sexual sin is probably the most common secret sin in our congregation. I mean, just look at the Bible. It's not secret there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all... You know, the, the leaders of the faith, all of them, broke this commandment. And so, uh, we struggle with this. And I, and I wonder, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if our response to it is so strong because we know what's going on in here. Nobody else does, but we know. And so we respond strongly when it comes out because that seems to communicate to others that we're not struggling. Or we wouldn't do that. And then what it does, it creates this sense that if you have failed sexually, then you are a second-class Christian, if you are a Christian. And that you should walk in shame and sit at the back. Because all you people at the back, they're the rows for all the sinners. Did you know that? <laughs> so you, you guys get here early to get the back seats. <laughs> and I'm glad you're, you're communicating to the rest of us that you're deeply in sin and need help. Like, that's fabulous. That's the sinner's part. Okay, that's not true. But if you were at a hockey game, you wouldn't be sitting back there, would you? You'd want the front seats. Anyway. Uh, uh, so what happens is, uh, that was a joke, by the way. I don't want any to receive emails. It's just a kidding joke. Like, you know, have some fun, lighten up. Oh, we're talking about sex. Yeah, okay. Just Anyway, uh, the, the uh, I forgot where I was. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we have this struggle with how to respond to people who have sinned sexually. And I think part of it is our own need to cover up for ourselves, but part of it is also the damage that it causes. So there's kind of a lot going on in this. But for my cue, I want to look at how Jesus handled people caught in sex. Because I mean, I'm sure that he would really want them when they found out that they had sex and were, were being sexually immoral and committing adultery. In verse, uh, John chapter 8, verse 3, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Uh, 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, I often have wondered, how in the world did they catch her in the act of adultery? I mean, I doubt it was happening on the street. So how in the world did they know to go into that house and into that room and catch her? And as many have pointed out before me, yeah, and what about him? Where's him? Anyway, we know uh, we can make some assumptions on that. Anyway, they bring her and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when he kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, that is interesting. Remember, any of you without sin, what's in sexual immorality? Now, I often ask, why nobody didn't pick up a stone and throw it? And then I realized they had been watching Jesus do all kinds of miracles <laughs> and say all kinds of things and reveal all kinds of things. And so if I were the first one to throw a stone, perhaps he knows about the side thing I got going. Or maybe it's a broader term referring to all kinds of sin, but maybe he will reveal that. Whatever the reason, none of them pick up a th stone and throw it. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightens up. He asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's it. Jesus doesn't condemn her because he knows he's going to the cross to pay for that sin. But it's very interesting. I don't condemn you. But you've sinned. Now go, repent from it and go live in repentance. That's it. That's how he dealt with it. Now, I think part of the reason we struggle with it is, one, it's a cover-up. We kind of react strongly because of what's really going on inside. But also because of the pain it causes. Several, several years ago, I was doing a, a wedding for a young couple. And they didn't go to the church I was at, but their, their father did, or his father did. And he was a very good friend of mine, so I was doing the wedding for them. Now... My friend had committed adultery, 
uh, decades before this, had committed adultery, and, and uh, it had caused the dis dissolution of their uh, marriage. And then he had moved on and got married to a new person, so did she. But it's decades later, and here at this wedding, there is so much angst and pain and tension. So much so that when it was all done and just... My, my friend and I were sitting down talking. Uh, his, him and his wife, Crystal and I, were sitting around talking. And, and, and Crystal and his wife were talking. And he and I were just kind of talking and you know, having our own conversation. And he said to me, I wish I had never done what I did. It has been decades of pain. And a celebration that ought to be a great family celebration just brings up the pain and the brokenness that really rests mostly on me. It's that pain that sexual immorality brings. And God doesn't, can't change that. God, I would go so far as to say God cannot change that because you were made in his image and as part of his image, you've given the right of free will. You get to choose what you will do. You get to choose whether you will be pure or whether you will be involved in sin. It's your choice. God gives you that choice because he made you in his image and gave you that ability so that you could fulfill the mission and live as unique uh, free-willed people. But that means you can choose to do wrong. And there's another law that God created in our world. What you sow, you reap. And so God cannot change the consequences. He can help you through them. But he cannot change them because then he would have to take away your free will and he would have to radically alter our world in which we sow what we reap. Because we sowing what we, we reaping what we sow is very valuable to us. I sow days of hard work and I get a paycheck. That's what I reap. And then all those paychecks pay for my family. That's a good principle. But when I sin, I also sow what I reap. And the pain of these sins sometimes makes you feel like God is still punishing you. And that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So I wanted to speak into the reality that some of you who have been involved in sexual sin and have felt the pain of it in your life and your family, God is not continuing to punish you. If you have repented and turned to him, the weight and the pain you're feeling is the consequences of a choice you made and then you're reaping the, the consequences of that decision. But our God doesn't condemn you anymore. Repent and sin no more. And now let me help you walk through this pain. Let me help you. It's true of all sin. Sometimes we feel like the consequences are God continuing to punish us. That's not what scripture teaches. And ironically, when the pain is the greatest from our consequences, that's when we refuse to turn to God, the one who would wants to help us through what we're going through. So don't let a false understanding keep you away from God. Let me close by simply saying Jesus said, love one another. Is there a person 
in your, when it comes to murder, I, 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 I doubt you're going to go out and murder. But it's easy to hate people from the heart. People have hurt us. And Jesus says, love that person. Is there a person in your life that has hurt you and you're, you're struggling with bitterness and anger and hatred toward them? Then sacrifice and learn how to forgive them. Is there a person you desire, maybe work with that person or they live next to you or you play sports with them or something and they're not your spouse, they, be they belong to some other woman, some other man, then, then deal with that temptation and that lust in your heart. And in both cases, God is more than willing to help you walk through those if you trust him. Jesus, today, help us to listen to your word. Not just what it says, but why you say that. And the value and the importance you put on our lives and the lives of people around us. Lord, we give in to sins like anger and bitterness, sexual sin, hatred, prejudice. Would you help us to walk clean of these? In your name I pray. Amen.